The Law Herb Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show, in print, and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org slash radiohour. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. Still in Maine, I see. Still in Maine, dressed like it's in the middle of winter. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a nice, it's, uh, it's still very nice. A summer in Maine is like the middle of winter in Los Angeles. Yeah, almost. It's probably colder than that. But oh my God. because I don't have internet or cell service, for the most part, I do get a lot of reading done, which is really nice. Ah, oh, that's, I'm jealous. That sounds amazing. And speaking of reading, mm-hmm. this week, we're listening to an interview of a book we both read by the writer Maya Binyam about her novel, Hangman. It's a novel that begins with a pretty impenetrable character and you don't really know who he is you don't know where he's going and you don't know the circumstances under which he's traveling and it sort of builds in its mystery while he meets other people and pieces together his own story and what he's actually doing in this place that he's traveled to and the place that he's traveling is the country uh, where he is from right he's left 26 years before we don't know the, quite the circumstances, but under some political strife. Right. Yeah. I was describing an, this novel to a friend and they said, oh, that sounds like an existentialist novel. Hmm, tell me more. What does that What does that mean? And then I thought, God, I'm so embarrassed that we, we didn't talk about that with Maya very much. But yes, it's like an existentialist novel where things aren't clear and someone needs to kind of find through the miasma their place in the world and learn things about themselves and in general, the human condition. Mm, yeah. In a, in a real capsule. And uh, I think I should re- revisit clearly the the category, but some of the opaqueness of what is happening to this character, I think is, and ultimately he's having to reckon with his position. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I guess it's like, if, listeners read it, get to the end, they will understand in some ways like that the existentialist is both uh, metaphorical and perhaps literal. And we should say, you know, we do get into specifics in this show. We do talk about Maya's own personal history, the story around her father, which partly inspires this book, her family's history in Ethiopia, and all of the ways in which all of that ties together to form this existentialist novel, if that's what you want to call it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not a mystery all the way through, no. but, but I, it, it retains some of those questions throughout. And I think that's part of what makes have that almost fable quality that you could continue to read it again and again, because mm-hmm. um, it does kind of boil down to some essential truth without too many uh, details to get lost in. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, yes. And and before we turn to that, I have to plug an event that is coming up with LARB 
and the writer George Saunders. Oh. Yeah, I know you're a fan, Dan. I'm a I'm a big fan. Yes, as am I. And I'm also a fan of who he will be in conversation with, someone we've also had on this show, the writer Charles Yu. Yeah, tell us tell us more about the event, Kate. Okay, so this is one of these LARB luminary dinners. They're fundraising dinners. They're also an amazing chance to be in a really intimate proximity with wonderful writers, other LARB people, have a delicious dinner. And, you know, it's fairly reasonable priced for all those lovely accoutrements. So this is happening on Saturday, September 23rd at a historic home in Hancock Park. And yes, and if you're interested, more details, tickets, and sponsorship packages are available at LAReviewOfBooks.org/slash events. I encourage people just to go for the food and ignore the conversation between Saunders <laughs> and Charles Yu. <laughs> Forget about George Saunders and Charles Yu, both National Book Award winners, I believe. Yeah, both highly acclaimed writers. But listen, you need dinner either way, so yeah. you could just go and eat. About the same price as going out to a fancy dinner in LA. And you have background conversations if you want. Exactly. Background conversation. <laughs> Very nice. Okay. Well, I, I hope the listeners will check that out. And let's us check out this week's interview with Maya Vinyam. Let's do it. We're happy to have the writer Maya Vinyam with us today. Her work has appeared in places such as The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Book Forum, and The Paris Review, where she's a contributing editor. Previously, she was also on the editorial staff of The New Inquiry and Triple Canopy, and she lives in Los Angeles. She's with us to speak about her debut novel, Hangman. The book begins with a man who finds himself returning to his home country somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa for the first time in 26 years. But the places, customs, and traditions he encounters there have become foreign or burdensome to him, and the people he meets, even members of his own family, somehow strange and unrecognizable. Somewhere in the country, his brother lays dying, but his journey to be by his side is marked by a series of losses, of money, clothes, and passport. Along the way, he's forced to rely on the stories and experiences of strangers he meets and speaks with at length to make sense of things, even if he sees himself as disinterested or apart from them. Working against more typical narratives of homecoming and migration, the book pushes deeper into questions about the essentialism and continuity of self, the individual versus the abstract, the obligation of kinship and the necessity of faith, as well as the possibility of political change. Thank you so much for being here, Maya. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Maya, maybe we can just start with talking a little bit about the narrator here, and how the voice of this unnamed, mostly unidentified person came to you? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's also a very difficult one I've found to answer just because the the creation of a voice, at least in this instance, was a strange alchemy of a minimal amount of kind of like original source material, which I can talk about. And then just many iterations of the voice appearing across stories that I was writing. So I I was writing stories for a while in the voice of this narrator. Those stories took place over different periods of his life, but in each of the stories, he shared basically the same biographical details. And I think it was through that process of writing and rewriting that the voice became crystallized, I guess. But 
It's really, really difficult to trace. I feel like the voice also got honed through the process of writing this book. In the first draft, you know, the first chapter was more or less the same as it is now, but his voice had accumulate had accumulated all kinds of ticks that ultimately got excised. And I threw, I think it was through the removal of those ticks and the additions of others in the process of editing that it became what it was, which is not an entirely satisfying answer. But yeah, I would say it was an alchemy of, I guess, people that I know and have witnessed in my life. And then the kinds of small changes that get made through repetition, I guess. I don't know. Years ago at this point, I can't remember how long ago, maybe 10 years ago, I found this travel diary that my father had written over the course of four days when he went to go visit his brother, who at the time was living in Israel. And it was a short travel diary. Like I said, it was only a few days. It was kind of initially basic in the things that it described, like it described the things that anyone might go through when they're traveling, like moving through an airport, going through security, getting your visa or whatever, but then ultimately became about his relationship with his brother and a particular point of encounter that happened later on in the trip, which he couldn't have anticipated, but that once it happened, I found as a kind of surreptitious reader of this travel diary, it felt like all of the events leading up to that moment of encounter really were about it, even though as he was writing the diary, he didn't know what was going to happen. And I think finding that was was kind of inspiring to me. I mean, it's something that I still haven't been able to figure out, like, if I was supposed to find it. I think it was in my childhood bedroom, which I was visiting. And I have like horrible boundaries with my parents and with like writing that they've produced. I think I'm not, I'm not, I haven't been so respectful of their privacy, unfortunately. But the diary itself was kind of a mystery. And I feel actually kind of mixed about talking about it, but I guess I'm talking about it now, so it's fine. Did you talk to your father about finding it or did you just read it sort of in secret and put it away? So I read it in secret and then I kept it with me. I didn't leave it where I found it. And then I wrote something that was based on the diary, like that was that more clearly mimicked the journey that he had taken. It was a different kind of a thing, but it sort of um, stole the form. And I wound up showing that to him and he read that which then meant that he also knew that I had read the diary and had the diary. So we were doing this like weird kind of communication around this object, which neither of us was naming, (laughs) but that we were able to sort of talk about through these fictional reproductions of it. (laughs) I think that, you know, one just really obvious element in the book is the clear alienation that the narrator feels both from his home land where he's visiting and also the home country from which he's coming from and also from his family almost so because he hasn't seen them in 26 years he doesn't recognize them his brother in this case has become kind of a almost ghostly presence who is in his email just asking for things so you know I wonder like if that alienation is something that was expressed in that diary that you read in your from your father, if that is something having this kind of distant homeland, maybe through your father that you yourself, I don't know if you've ever 
I don't even know where your father's from, but just this thing of this other place that promises home that doesn't arrive. So I was just wondering how that's come up personally for either your father or for yourself. Yeah, I mean, to answer your first question, I don't think that that sense, I think that there was a sense of alienation in that travel diary that doesn't mimic exactly the kind of alienation that the narrator experiences in the novel. In the novel, the narrator's returning to his home country. In this travel diary, my father was traveling to a place that he didn't have any meaningful personal connection to, but that his brother had found a kind of refuge in. So they were two exiles who were reuniting in a country that is also a site of colonial occupation. And so I think there there wasn't the same feeling of supposed belonging. There was a feeling of, well, I have to go to this place because that's where my brother has wound up. That's where like these geopolitical forces that are kind of beyond our control, but that are intensely intimate have taken us. And it's also a place that they both, I feel, feel intensely like critical of. Like there's something about Israel that is like deeply wrong in even the travel diary. But there was a kind of alienation in that too, in that he was taking on this very formal, self-conscious tone. You know, he was writing in a journal, which as far as I understand is not something that he typically does. Because he was writing in a form that he doesn't typically write in, he was very aware of the conventions of that form. And the same is kind of true in the novel too. The narrator is an incredibly reluctant narrator of his own life, but he knows that he is an immigrant and a former refugee who's returning to his home country. And he knows that a particular kind of story is expected of him. So there is a kind of formality to his narration and a willingness to invoke the conventions of of that mode of storytelling while also kind of trying to skirt them at every step. So that's like, I guess, an answer to the first part of your question. And then the second part, if this is something that I've witnessed sort of in my father's experience of of going back home, he's from Ethiopia, or in my experience, I mean, yeah, it's certainly something that I've felt. I've gone back to Ethiopia throughout my life. I lived there for a while after college. I went most recently a few months ago. And I don't think alienation is like, is exactly the thing is the word that I would use to describe those experiences. They're incredibly mixed and varied experiences and they change every time. I felt really differently when I lived in Ethiopia than I did most recently when I was returning for only a month. For me, there's like intense, incredible pleasure in the experience of going back and hearing a language that I otherwise get to hear, only get to hear in my home, being spoken everywhere and tasting food that I haven't tasted in a long time or that I only get to taste the like strange reproductions of, which never taste like, you know, what they taste in in Ethiopia itself. But then there's also, there is like an intense strangeness to those experiences too, because I don't speak Amharic fluently. And so my personality even in interactions with people who are meant to be very familiar to me, who I'm meant to be very close to, gets sort of reduced to its most fundamental parts. Like I get to be happy or sweet or bored or sad or polite, but I don't really get to be much beyond that in terms of what I'm able to express to these people that I do love meaningfully and, and have a real connection to. And I think, I think the narrator experiences some of that as well. So when you were living there, what did it feel like to be sort of reduced into 
into your capabilities of the language? Or did it feel like a reduction or did it feel like a constraint in a way, almost like a, a poetic constraint, not a poetic constraint exactly, but you find ways to get around it? It's both a reduction and it feels like a reminder too. Like I think all of the all of the things that I wind up being reduced to are also things that are truthful about me that I sometimes forget in my everyday life. And I think I was living there when I was 22. I had just graduated from college and I felt it to be a kind of complete and total relief. I really didn't, I didn't necessarily enjoy the experience of going to college. There were many things that I enjoyed about it, but it felt like something that I really needed to recover from and something that I was like very confused by that had felt kind of socially strange and chaotic and like another planet. And so at that moment in my life, it was really helpful to return to a kind of like fundamental part of myself and to see that mirrored in my interactions with other people. And to a certain extent, I was doing that kind of personality mirroring too, because in the absence of, of communication, of verbal communication, I could, you know, like mimic people's expressions or their gestures or, or their habits, or even like their habits of everyday living, like the routines that I took on were not the routines that I would normally have in my everyday life. But going back a few months ago, I found it incredibly frustrating. So yeah, it just, it just depends. It just depends. It's interesting you say it was like a relief to be shifted into a fundamental version of yourself, because that's something that I comes up so much with the narrator in the novel, that there is something with the lack of context that he seems to have for for the culture that he's a part of, you know, having arrived back home, for his complete blankness about how he got there, even why exactly he's there. Certain customs seem to him, you know, they don't have that deep resonance. They seem random almost, you know, he understands what he's supposed to do maybe, but there's not an, not like a deep, I don't want to say appreciation, but. Oh, I think that's right. Okay. There's not a deep appreciation for those customs. And he himself can almost seem to resist personality at times. So, and also I think personality comes up, custom and personality come up here as not necessarily being positive things. I mean, (laughs) that they can kind of collude and confuse and make us miss a larger point or truth that we see things colored through them, but without them, we might see things more clearly. So I wondered if you could talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is something that comes up a lot in the book. And at a certain point he says something like, you know, it's difficult to know whether customs survive because they were good and beneficial to the people who practice them or because people were rewarded socially for going along with the status quo. And that's something that appears throughout the book. He feels at once a kind of obligatory attachment to the rituals that he's been brought up with, which should be familiar to him. And at the same time, he's resentful of the ways that those rituals guide behavior and guide interactions and He kind of wants desperately to feel meaning in his life and in his relationships with people. And at the same time, he he relies so heavily on on these conventions of interaction that he forgets to look for meaning where it might kind of surprise him, if that makes sense. Well, we find out certain things about him 
from the beginning. And then the book slowly chooses to reveal certain things and allows the reader to make their own connections. But one of the things that we do know is that he he's a refugee. And, you know, it struck me that during most of the book, there's almost no refuge for him. He spends one night in a home, but the rest of the time really seems adrift. And I wonder what the relationship is there between, or what relationship there is between refuge and a structure, (laughs) like a home. That's such a good question. And he's, he's sort of desperately looking for that, even if he doesn't, even if he tries not to make his desperation clear, he keeps seeing these structures that should be familiar to him, that should signify safety. Like at a certain point, he encounters his old house, which is now being occupied by missionaries. And so these structures, I think you're right, sort of continue to fail him. In the beginning of the book, there's the home that you mentioned that he sleeps in for a night is the sort of like luxurious home of his cousin, which seems to promise comfort. But in fact, he's kind of he's kind of shunted out of there pretty immediately. I was thinking for a long time before I wrote this book somewhat explicitly about the relationship between those two things, refuge and sort of not necessarily structure, but I guess like the legal provision of refuge Refuge has historically in the States been a political term with shifting meaning that's very dependent on the relationship between the U.S. and the various states where it will or won't accept refugees from. But it does nevertheless connote like safety and livelihood, especially when it's sort of spoken in distinction to a country of origin, which must be a place of of persecution and potential death. But I think for a lot of Black immigrants who are finding refuge in the States, the idea that the States could actually meaningfully provide refuge is kind of obviously farcical. And those distinctions between life and a site of refuge and death at a country of origin become, I think, sort of completely confused. And technically, legally, Refuge is supposed to be a kind of temporary state that people pass through and the obligations of the government to the people who it's enabling to find refuge in the states are kind of unclear, especially once that once that temporary passage is made. And so I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which people sustain the conditions of refuge amongst themselves. I grew up in a community of people, many of whom came to the States as refugees and political asylees. And it became clear to me that if we felt safety amongst ourselves, it wasn't because the government was making some provision. I mean, in many cases, people were living in government-funded housing, but we were feeding each other and celebrating with each other. And when someone died, it was often people in the community who were coming together to ensure that their families were able to deal with the very expensive business of dying, that they were able to continue to care for themselves and for each other. And so basically through the process of writing this novel, I became interested in refuge actually as a kind of structureless thing that's produced between people that isn't provided by by governing bodies, by the sorts of structures that you're referencing, but is actually produced and maintained interpersonally. And I think that that is sort of, the novel has made me cynical about that. Like, I think the novel is is much more focused on 
the lack of structures as opposed to what's produced in their absence. Though there's some of that too, like a lot of the people that he meets, even if they only house him for one night or whatever, a lot of them are are trying to both tell him something about his situation and also try to ease it. Well, and in a way, like in a way it's too late. That perhaps those the structureless forms of refuge had been available, but at this point they were no longer. Right, and he's been very resistant to them. Like his life in in the country where he's found refuge, it could be good, it could be bad. We don't really know that much about it, but we do know that he thinks of himself as a person who is incredibly resourced, as a person who has access to medicine, as someone who is kind of guaranteed life by virtue of his status as a former refugee. So even if those structures have failed him, he doesn't really recognize that. He's not willing to go there. It does seem, though, that he finds eventually in the people that he talks to, if he doesn't have a connection to, like a nationalistic connection to where he's coming from or arriving, it's really in talking to people that he gets some kind of connection again. And there's this part in the book where you say, even when people tried to be blank slates, they would end up frenetically seeking out the perspectives of strangers, which eventually infiltrated their psyches and turned them back into opinionated regular members of society. And I thought that really encapsulated the book. I mean, because so much of the book is him, he's so reticent as a narrator about telling us his story, his history. We do get these little bits, but he hears so many other people's stories. And that is how he's kind of becoming, again, a part of where he's from. Right, right. I mean, he wants to believe in his own sovereignty. And even as he sort of expects this intensely welcoming arrival back to his own country, he is also, the line that you read about, like, people tried to be blank slates, he's sort of describing that process by which people turn from blank slates into, like, opinionated members of society. Like, he's kind of derisive about that process. He, like, wants to believe in the fantasy of remaining a blank slate. But it's through, like you said, his interactions with strangers where he has to kind of give that up. He has to recognize that he is vulnerable to the suffering of others or the joy of others or or just what other people have gone through. And that as much as he may try to believe that the lives of others have nothing to do with him. They, in fact, are intensely related. And and that's something that is kind of symbolically recognized throughout the book, but then also literalized. You learn that it's literalized by the end, I think. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Maya Binyam, author of Hangman. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I have Prudence Piper on the line with me. Her first book is called The Slip, the New York City street that changed American art forever. And she's here to give me a book recommendation. Can I give you more than one? Of course. It's always allowed. Okay. Only because it's really hard to pick just one. And also because I feel like I'm always just trying to read so much in order to you know write better and to think better. So the first recommendation I'd love to give is a book which just came out and which I just read called The Nameplate, which is a portrait of nameplate jewelry and the kind of history of nameplate jewelry from 
the ancient pharaohs to the contemporary hip-hop moment, and it's really an incredible book that has both photographic portraits of and personal stories about people wearing their nameplate jewelry. And I found it just totally fascinating and also kind of really fills a hole in decorative and jewelry history. Who's that book by? That is by Marcel Rosa Salas and Isabel Achia Flower. And then the other book that I wanted to mention, just because it was a real revelation to me, and I read it in kind of the height of the pandemic, so a little while ago now in December of 2020, was Jen Chaplin's My Autobiography of Carson McCullers. And it's a really extraordinary book. It's part biography of a writer I love. Carson McCullers is one of my favorite writers. It's part memoir of the author's relationship to that life. It's sort of part archive fever about a queer writer uncovering love letters to a woman in McCullers' archive that had been sort of suppressed for years. And one of the things I found most powerful about it was this idea about the kind of silences of history that contain so many true stories and, you know, how we kind of lose and find ourselves in any kind of project we're working on. And it really resonated with me as I was working on my own book project. And I actually just discovered that Chaplin has a book of essays coming out in a couple of weeks called Thin Skin. So I'm very excited to be reading those. Mm, Sounds great. Those sounds like two interesting approaches to nonfiction, creative nonfiction. I could see how that would be inspiring for your work. Yes, indeed. Could you tell us the titles again and the authors? Sure. So my first book recommendation is called The Nameplate, and it's by Marcel Rosa Salas and Isabel Achia Flower. And the other book that I really loved is Jen Chaplin's My Autobiography of Carson McCullers. Thank you so much, Prudence. Thank you, Kate. That was Prudence Pfeiffer. Her book is called The Slip, the New York City street that changed American art forever. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Maya Binyam, author of Hangman. As a formal decision, I was curious, in a book that is so much about the stories of other people that there's not any real dialogue here. It's very much, it's all told through the narrator and what he hears. I was curious about that decision. Yeah, I mean, I just really wanted to stay in his head I wanted his psychology to be the one that information about other people became sort of like transformed and warped through. And that's, there are a few reasons for that. One, I think, is that there are a lot of informational asymmetries in this book. There's what the narrator knows about himself, but refuses to reveal to the people he's encountering or to the reader. There's what the people he's encountering may know about him, but refuse to tell him. And then there's what the reader's think that they know about him, but aren't quite sure about and which he may not know himself. And I think balancing all of that was very tricky and required remaining in his head. I wanted the reader to be able to doubt too the way that he was describing things. I mean, he has very strong opinions about the various people that he's interacting with and those opinions color the way that he receives what they're telling him. And and his opinions 
They're kind of basic strong opinions. Like he's like, they're good looking, they're ugly, they're very well dressed, they're dirty. And I just wanted to stay in that and in his kind of, yeah, like warped, almost sociological understanding of the world. And I think other people's voices do come in to a certain extent, like the way that people self-describe is not exactly how the narrator self-describes. And they have ways of phrasing things that appear as strange and confusing to the narrator. But I felt like staying in his head could both heighten the disorientation that's inherent to the novel and then also render those informational asymmetries clearer, I guess. We should also talk about kinship, I think, because part of something that happens, he goes to this unnamed country, sort of anticipating visiting his brother. And he meets people where he is unsure whether they are related to him or not. Some people greet him as my brother, but they turn out to be his cousin. Some people, he thinks they're related, they're not. One of the things I was thinking, like I'm a refugee also, originally from Georgia, went back to Georgia a few years ago and you meet people and people are like, this is your family member. And you're like, I don't know this person. You don't know them at all. It could be a person walking down the street and they're like, this is, this is your uncle. And you're like, okay, sure. Yeah. And so like kinship gets a really, it both remains like a sort of like foundational sort of through line. Because if you still have kin there, you still have some connection to it. You still, these people who are of you in some way, and yet there's no knowledge either of you or them. And so it's a really bizarre understanding of what kinship is. And I think at the end here in this book, which we won't reveal, but that brotherhood becomes particularly complicated. And so I was wondering like what, I know this is maybe a big question, so sorry, but like when you were approaching this issue of kinship and what who is kin and who isn't and how do we deal with people who are, who aren't, how are you thinking about it? How are you, or is there like an anecdotal thing that you were sort of keeping in mind as you were writing about this? Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, I think that there is a presumption, or I at least have had this presumption growing up in the States that people are kin by virtue of the fact that they grow up in shared conditions, right? Like, so there's a nuclear family and there are two parents who have children and they grow up together and life is kind of the same for a period for all of them, like at least for the period of childhood and adolescence. And I kind of believed in that fantasy growing up, even though it didn't accord to my reality at all. I have an older brother who's like 18 years older than me. He has a different mother. He was born under very different circumstances than I was and had a very different kind of childhood. My father and mother weren't together, so it's not like we shared a household. But nevertheless, I think growing up in the States and consuming American media, I thought that what bound me to other people, what produced kin were these shared living conditions. And I think that that's something that I was really interested in when I was writing the novel. The narrator basically, he's going back and interacting with people that he does feel a kind of symbolic closeness to, or a closeness that that's born through some idea of being related by blood. But in fact, his living conditions have been completely different from many of the people that he's encountering. And that's most clear in his relationship with his brother, who could be, we don't really know, he could be someone that he 
grew up with and shared a home with. We kind of presume that to be true, but their lives have gone in very different directions. The narrator has fled the country and found refuge. His brother has stayed home. And by virtue of that, their relationship has become at once formalized and also quite different from what we might expect of brotherhood. His brother is basically only in touch with him to ask him for stuff. And those asks are pretty formal and they're, you know, they're asked for money primarily. They're asked for medicine. They're asked for new Swiss bank accounts. And they're often related back to what's happening on sort of like a global political scale. And there isn't a lot of love and care expressed in that, even though the narrator, I think, feels that that he should feel that love and care for for and from his brother. But ultimately, that relationship is is kind of vacant. But nevertheless, he, he goes back and he tries to find find and feel kinship with with these people that that are meant to be related to him. And, and oftentimes he finds kinship or tries to find kinship with people who are in fact strangers to him. And that that's something, I mean, I don't know if this has been your experience, but when I've gone back to Ethiopia, especially with my father, there are times when we're just walking around the city and my dad is just kind of walking around his old neighborhood looking for someone that he might know. Like there's, there's something like really incredible in that search and just kind of leaving the house being like, who will I find? And, and will someone know me? And I've watched him become very disappointed when he does that. And in fact, he doesn't know anyone. And he's just kind of like an ordinary person in this place where he used to have immense and seismic and kind of ordinary connections. But there's also something beautiful in that too. And and that kind of like very simple search for recognition that's often disappointed. And the uncertainty of like, are these people related to me or am I a stranger? And are they strangers too? I feel like the, you know, that often the way we relate to other people is either by feeling some connection, kinship to them or a specificity about their story, that we need to know everything about their story and that that will be the link, you know, that will give us empathy, that will give us some kind of engagement, that will call us to action. And here, I think that that comes into question many times if that is the thing that actually will galvanize people to care about another person, country. You know, it's like there are aid workers here who it's like he's hearing their story. He's not really convinced. Um, Even the news, it's like the way he reads the news is kind of to give him context to make him care that it's not always just assumed that one will, that there has to be some kind of story. And then if that is not present, where are we then? And so I found the blankness of the narrator at times a real challenge, but actually like a really stimulating challenge in that he's not, it wasn't assumed that by giving his backstory in like total detail, I would then care about him. It was just that he was there but I thought it was like kind of like a, almost like a moral exercise in some way. I was curious to hear you talk about that, just that needing of story, of information, of detail, of to forge connection where like someone suffering alone maybe should be the thing. It's funny, as you're, as you're saying that, I'm realizing that I've, I've been resistant, I think, to that mode of 
self-narration and description, but also that mode of, of narrating other people's lives in order to sort of drum up empathy. For a while now, as you were talking, I was remembering years ago, I had worked on this project that had to do with raising bail funds. And oftentimes the media requests that we would get would ask us to tell the story of someone who had been bailed out of pretrial incarceration using the funds that we had generated. And we didn't have access to that information. Bail funds don't typically, or people who raise money for bail funds don't typically work in that way. You don't earmark the funds for a particular kind of person who is being incarcerated. But oftentimes the media who were interested in covering the project really, really wanted that. Like they wanted the story of one person who probably had been, you know, they wanted the story of someone who had been like wrongfully incarcerated or whatever, or who had committed or was accused of committing a petty crime. Anyway, <laughs> I was very resistant to that and we didn't obligate that request ever in part because it wasn't possible, but also because all of us who were working on the project were really opposed to it. And it's hard. Like, I, I do have a fundamental opposition, but it also hasn't been my experience of the world that gleaning biographical details about someone helps me understand them. And I can offer kind of like a, a clear or a specific example of that, which is that my father shares a number of biographical details with the narrator in this book. As you mentioned, those biographical details are slim and they're kind of parceled out throughout the text. But something that we know about him eventually is that he was a political prisoner. And the same is true of my father. He was a political prisoner in Ethiopia in the 70s. That's something that I know to be true about him. It's something that he talks about very rarely. At this point in my life, I heard, have heard many stories about him being in prison, and I sort of know the circumstances under which he was arrested and eventually released. But it's also completely intangible to me, and it's intangible both because he doesn't talk about it, but I have the sense that even if he did talk about it a lot, even if he was committed to representing that experience through language, I wouldn't fundamentally understand what that experience was. I can sort of glean all of the effects that that experience has had on his life. I can see the sort of things that have grown around the experience itself, but having access to the experience doesn't help me relate to him as as my father and then just also as, as a person. And I mean, I think that there's a fundamental failure when people try to represent experiences through language. And that's, I say it's fundamental because language can't mimic experience. It's like a representational tool that some of us choose to utilize. Others among us choose to use music or painting or whatever. But I think because of that, I mean, I, I'm very interested in confronting that failure, but I think things that rely intensely on biographical details to generate empathy I think they're kind of operating under the myth that that failure doesn't exist. And there's something kind of like deceptive to me about that. One of the central questions I think that comes up in the book is, is there any possibility for salvation? I think that comes up in the book in both the religious sense, salvation by a, a formal sort of engagement with God, but also in like a socio-political sense. 
where the character comes upon two, who he thinks are two graduate students arguing. One is arguing that actually, in fact, there is not really any progress, that all the suffering that people have gone through, it will find out that eventually it's for nothing because history is cyclical. And then the other is arguing, well, no, in fact, there is a reason for the suffering, that suffering does beget better circumstances for people and that actually history is not cyclical. It is a, it's a matter, I think you put it very nicely, but I'm not going to find it right now because it'll take forever. But that's a matter of certain oppressed groups figuring out how to better their circumstances and actually revolution being possible. And the, those two ideas sort of seem linked to me where their personal salvation or this larger question of like historical, historical social salvation is possible. And I'm not quite sure where the book ends up I think I can venture a guess, but I wonder what you think. Are those two things linked for you? Are those two questions sort of related to each other? Is there hope for one and not the other? Is there hope for both? Is there no snow hope at all? The two questions being like in the political context and in the religious context? Or in the personal, whether or not, I think the easiest framing seems to be that personal is through God and perhaps not through religion. Yeah, although I suppose people make personal narratives of like personal suffering all the time at which like redemption, you know, I mean, I find myself doing this all the time when I'm like, oh yeah, sure. Like I went through that horrible breakup, but it ultimately led me to this point in my life, which I find to be joyous. And so that joy redeems, you know, the heartbreak or whatever from before, like I mean, it's easy to exercise that kind of thinking. I'm a very superstitious person. So I'm even like, oh, well, like maybe I wouldn't have written this book. I'm very happy I wrote this book. Maybe I wouldn't have written this book if like that random thing or that random bad thing hadn't happened to me before. I find that kind of meaning making really enticing. I don't know if if other people exercise it as much as I do. I'm personally without the kind of religious framing because I don't at this point in my life have a personal relationship to kind of like godly redemption. I mean, I think I'm sort of ambivalent about it in both contexts. I think that maintaining a belief that all suffering will be redeemed by our collective liberation, like I think maintaining that belief is a political one. It's not something that I always, (laughs) that I always sincerely believe in my heart. It's something that I struggle with a lot, but I think that aligning with it is something that I kind of feel like I need to do. And the narrator is someone who who held that belief strongly. Like we know that we know that he was in prison and he was in prison for being a revolutionary. Like he felt that the revolution was not only eventual, but it was inevitable. It was something that was going to happen. But we're sort of meeting him at this moment of almost political hangover. Like that belief belonged not to a past life, but to an earlier life. And he's been conditioned by things that have happened to him subsequently by fleeing the country, by finding life in a new country that has very little interest in the country that he has left behind. Yeah, I think he has like a a feeling of a political hangover and he isn't quite sure how to reapproach the beliefs that once animated him. And it's that conversation in the book that you mentioned that's between the two people that he believes are graduate students, it's a conversation that I've had many times with my dad, who, as I said, was likewise a political prisoner. And many of his friends 
were executed and he himself was prepared to be executed and was almost killed a handful of times. And every time he describes the moment of almost being killed, he almost he almost describes it. He describes his own approach to death at those moments as welcoming, because I think he did really believe that if he died, it would be a just sacrifice. And maybe it's the case that his retelling of those near encounters with death are being imbued with new meaning. Maybe the way that he tells those stories now are not actually how he experienced them, but that is certainly how he tells them. There was this kind of collective belief that if anyone suffered individually, if anyone died, it would be okay because the world that they were sacrificing themselves for was about to arrive. And he feels really differently now. Like now he feels, I think, quite sad that he lost a lot of friends who, in his mind, retrospectively, died for nothing. He has continued to live. The thing that they were fighting for has not been realized. And he's living in another country that seemingly has very little to do with the one that he came from, where his life is mostly defined by like consumer comforts. Actually, it's not defined by that. It's defined by plenty of other things. But if you sort of look at it from afar, that's what it it seems to be. But something that the book does well is kind of, again, pare down what the main struggle is, and that's it's kind of a transnational issue, which is greed. Consumerism, capitalism, because even in, in this unnamed country, although the infrastructure is not the same and the politics are not the same, the same problems that arise in the States are arising there. I mean, that there's a clear link is made, at least to me, in the book. And it takes the struggle to a more global level than just what, you know, the kind of like unrolling of politics and ever-changing that happened in this country that the narrator is returning to, you know, the privatization to the public, to then things being made public and back again, political prisoners. But I do think you highlight a larger struggle. Right. And I think anyone who's engaged in political struggle knows that the struggles that seem to be sort of site-specific or contained within the boundaries of the nation are in fact not. They are always transnational. And many people who are engaged in political struggle organize with people across borders because the border itself is the thing that intensifies, it intensifies persecution. And I think he, he has some sense of that. And your own sense of that, is that like an animating force in your life? It seems that the book wants to make us aware of that. Yeah, is it an animating force in my own life? I mean, it's something that I try to animate in my everyday life. It's something that I feel like is extremely disincentivized by life in America. That that sense of relation is, it should be innate, it should be obvious, but I think that all of the forces that that seem to produce life here, that seem to produce you know, the conditions of quality living try to make it seem as if what we have here is highly specific and that the hope of connections to others are is kind of futile. I mean, you can see it in the way that like the news tends to be written, which is as if stories of what's happening elsewhere has very little to do with what's happening here. And they can be consulted as sources of entertainment or of kind of like projected sadness 
but there's a real intimacy that's lacking in that kind of, yeah, popular mode of storytelling around current events. Let's talk about the title. Why is it called Hangman? It's a good question. It's hard for me to remember exactly where where and how the title came to me. When I was first writing the novel, I had another title in mind. But at that point, I didn't really know what the book was going to be. The title was really just a collection of words that I felt it was helpful to return to while I was writing. It was For a Brother in His Need, which is not a great title, but I knew when I began the story that there was going to be this relationship between two brothers. And brother, as I kept writing, referred both to, I mean, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, it referred both to the kind of familial relationship, but then also all of these all of these non-blood related brothers that he's kind of accumulating throughout the text. And some of those brothers are sisters or whatever, though he's less willing to accept women into his life, I think, overall. And then need, of course, is something that sort of recurs throughout the text. But by the time I finished, it felt like the book had something to do with that title, but that title didn't describe the book in the form that it had wound up taking And anyway, Hangman at a certain point popped into my mind. Again, I wasn't sure why or how, but once it did, it felt to me like the book had something to do both with the game Hangman, which is a kind of like perverse children's game in which the idea of a body exists, though it only comes into being, it only is actually depicted once someone tries to apply language to it. And then once it is kind of fully realized, there's something incredibly sinister about it. The body never just gets to be a body. Once it's fully a body, there's something sort of horrible being done to it. So I was thinking about that, but then also thinking about, you know, like the hangman, like the the person who facilitates the execution, though it's also kind of confused with the person who's being executed. But I think the tone of the game, the kind of like childishness of the game and the frivolity of it combined with its, I don't know, strangely sinister outcome. There was something about that that felt right. I'm happy that they gave the book such a kind of like colorful cover because if you Google, you know, hangman novel, there are like 25 murder mysteries (laughs) written under that name. The cover is amazing. It's a beautiful cover. I love yes. this artist. She's so good. She had, I mean, the, her traveling retrospective was in L.A. I don't know. I saw it. I saw it. Uh, yeah, I saw it in New York. Well, yeah, no, hopefully no other hangman has this beautiful cover. And congratulations. And thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Maya Binyam. Her debut novel is called Hangman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.